Bible, just raise your hand. I'll come up and get one. Or, or start bringing your Bibles, okay? Would you? No. <laughs> if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to your seat. <laughs> and if you don't own one, this is yours to keep. So. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for healing Mike. Lord, for taking uh, any clot or, or damage to his heart that might have been there, Lord. And uh, Lord, it's gone. And we praise you for that. And Lord, you are the great healer, the great physician. And Lord, so much better just to ask you before we even take a step further uh, in that, that line, Lord. So thank you for the healing. For Mike, thank you for this time this evening, Lord. Thank you for your word. As, Lord, we know that uh, your Holy Spirit, you are here to teach us and instruct us in all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so, Lord, we pray just your blessing upon our time together. Pray your blessing upon our children downstairs as they are taught your word as well. We give it all to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dreams. We all have them. My wife and I, you know, usually wake up, you know, after a night's sleep and we tell each other what we dreamed of and... Got up this morning, no different, and, and Lisa said she dreamed about being in space, and she was in this spaceship, and she was going off into the sky, and she had to make sure the spaceship was lined up with the stars so she wouldn't get lost. I, on the other hand, had a dream that I was in this brand new red Porsche, Man, I said, I wonder how fast we could go, and going really fast on our way to the axe-throwing place that they have here in town, which is so... Probably before we went to bed last night, we took a drive through the new Porsche dealership off the 65, and then we came home and watched an episode of Star Trek Enterprise and then fell asleep. <laughs> you got to see where your dreams come into play there. Dreams are often the result of what you did the day before, but not so for King Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebi has had a dream, and this dream had made no sense to him, but he knew there's meaning behind it. It wasn't just something he ate. It wasn't something that happened the day before. Now, if you recall last time together that King Nebuchadnezzar ordered his right-hand man, Ashpenaz, to find among the captive Jews young men who were really prime specimens of looks and intelligence to bring them in and then serve uh, in his court. And they chose Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and then intent, attempted really to indoctrinate them on the Babylonian culture and way. Taking their Hebrew names that glorified God, they, they replaced them with, with given Babylonian names that would lift up the gods of Babylon. Gave them Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, the Babylonians hoped that these new names would help these youth to forget their God and gradually become more like the heathen people and, and whom they were living and studying with. Kind of just a little bit, one day at a time, just cause, cause you to compromise a little bit and a little bit. But in reality, all it did was commit these Hebrew teenagers to a deeper relationship with God. Oh yeah, we are going to stand firmer than before. And these four took the stand, remember that they wanted, to, they wanted them to eat of the king's court, the, the food from the king's court, which many of these just were not kosher, something a good Jewish boy wouldn't eat. And they said, oh, Lord, you know, Daniel said, hey, if we don't eat it, you know, just, just check and see if we're not going to be healthier than the other guys. And sure enough, the Lord uh, 
blessed them. And, and when they took the stand and remained faithful to the Lord over the food that they ate, God honored that and granted them knowledge and intelligence. So at the end, they really stood apart from the rest. They were chosen really to become the king's consultants for matters of wisdom and understanding. Well, now we come to chapter 2. And King Nebi, he's got a dream. Look at verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. I'm having dreams that, that, that trouble you. I read that the story is told on the morning of April 14, 1865, that Abraham Lincoln uh, gathered his advisors and cabinet to discuss plans for implementing the reconstruction of the United States after the Civil War and after the devastation from the Civil War. But during the hours in the morning while they were working, Abraham Lincoln told them about a reoccurring dream that he had had. And uh, the dream came at a crucial time during the war. In his dream, he saw himself on, on uh, uh, board a singular, indescribable vessel that was moving rapidly toward this indefinite uh, shore. They talked about the dream that morning, but nobody knew what it meant. That night, Lincoln went to Fort's Theater and was shot by John Wilkes Booth before another day that ended, he was in eternity. John Phillips writes this concerning that. The vessel was his own life. The dream he had was a warning of what was soon to take place. He was about to embark for the shores of eternity. Little did he imagine that the dream had personal meaning for him and very important meaning too for the nation. Well, same place for Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. Look at verse 2. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. So we read that, that first of all, he has this dream, and he can't sleep. I mean, he's tossing and turning now. It says here that he's extremely anxious over the dream, to, to, to know what, the, what this means, this dream. I mean, you ever wonder in the middle of the night why it is that when you wake up, all of a sudden every thought in your mind is about every hurt you've ever experienced, every frustration you've ever gone through, every unsolved problem, every relationship you had difficulty with, and you're lying in bed going, why am I thinking about all these things? And anxiety starts to build up in your life, and you go, what is going on? It's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. It's 5 o'clock in the morning. Bang, your alarm goes off. And you go, I didn't get any sleep at all. Why? Because we get so anxious. We have anxiety. Billy Graham said this back in 1965. Historians will probably call our era the age of anxiety. Anxiety is the natural result when our hopes are centered in anything short of God and His will for us. Seek God's, seek God's word. <laughs> um, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, I think we all know that. Be anxious for nothing, but by everything through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God uh, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So go to the Lord first and say, Lord, I, I'm having this anxiety. I'm having this anxiousness in my heart. Lord, would you take it away? Lord, I don't want to have these things. And Lord, help me to put my mind on you. I find it so refreshing. And, and I've done this. I've shared this before. You know, when I do wake up in the night and I start thinking about these things, now I have a, an app on my phone that's tied into my speaker. And I just tell, you know, little my computer thing to, to read scripture to me. You know, read Matthew chapter 1, verse, you know, 5 through 9. And it reads that. And, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm thinking about scripture. I'm 
thinking about points I would make if I was teaching scripture and thinking about all these other, and, and fast asleep. Just getting my mind off of the things that, that the devil would want to, you know, to cause us to, to, to think about and to take away the peace that we have. Well, Nebi, he has this dream and, uh, and he's anxious. And uh, now understand, he was a young general fresh off a of military conquest. His father, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, had just died while Nebuchadnezzar was in battle. Uh, he'd ceased the fighting. He returned home to take the crown. His dad was a this superstitious idolater. He kept his wizards around to consult the stars and give him advice. But, but, but young Nebuchadnezzar was a little skeptical and decided to use this dream to check on their credibility. So after this disturbing night of dreams, he calls together, it reads in verse 2, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. One pastor calls these guys the committee of the world's wisdom. I mean, these were the guys who seemed to have the scoop on the supernatural, and, and this dream was clearly out of the ordinary. Each of these, uh, these men, these groups mentioned, specialized in different areas. The, the members of the first class list are, are called the magicians. It's a, it's a term comes from a Hebrew word meaning to engrave. They were the fortune tellers, an elite group that claimed to know what no one else knows. Today we'd call them politicians. But, but anyway, <laughs> these men they, they, uh, whose connection with the spirit world was based on their knowledge of the cult, having studied the, the cultic engravings. Then you have the astrologers next. Now this is not talking about the stargazers, despite the English translation of astrologer. It's also called enchanters or conjurers. These are people who thought they could talk to the dead. They were the necromancers channeling spirits through their own bodies. Thirdly, you have the word sorcerers there. These were what we call witches. They used spells and incantations to affect the natural world through supernatural means. And then lastly, you have the Chaldeans. That that can be confusing because the the inhabitants of Chaldea were called the Chaldeans. But there was also a group of men among the citizens who were considered wise and learned. And they became known as the Chaldeans. So King Nebuchadnezzar invites these guys in, his wisest counselors, his counselors, but he, he leaves out his wisest counselors. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or, or Bel- Belshazzar, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they would call them. To understand more fully, we might say today that Nebuchadnezzar summoned the occultists, the, the psychics, the wiccans, the scholars to help him understand what his dream meant, but he didn't invite any fundamental Bible believers. I mean, isn't that the way of the world? Even in spiritual matters, we find that everyone is consulted except the evangelical Christian. You know, when they have these specials on TV about Noah's Ark or exorcism or the crucifixion of Christ, who do they call in? Every so-called expert, this guy with all these letters after his name, and this guy studied this, and this guy studied that, but, but never once do you see uh, or hear a biblical answer. It's always, well, this, and it's kind of skeptical. Verse 3 we read, And the king said to them, I've had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now stop there for a moment. From verse 4 here, to the end of chapter 7, the original text is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Aramaic was the language of the Babylonian court in Daniel's day. And since the content of the section deals mostly with the Gentile kingdoms, it's written in Aramaic. And in chapter 8, the focus then returns to the Jews. So the language of the text reverts back to Hebrew. So Nebi's wizards, the committee of the world's wisdom, come and they say, look at verse 4. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give you the interpretation. 
Now, the sorcerers had occult manuals and secret symbolism they used to decode dreams. They're, they're planning to just look them through their books and maybe give an interpretation. But they're quickly surprised when the king says, not so fast. Look at verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Could you imagine if you were one of those guys who were going, oh, crud. We're in trouble now. I mean, he's not messing around. I mean, they're given an an incentive program. Do or die. (laughs) Verse 7. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious that gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. King wanted to know what the dream meant. The men said to him, no problem, tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. The king, the king says, no way, Jose, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. And they said, no, you tell me the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And they go back and forth, back and forth, and the king says, that's enough. We're done. Why? Because, you know, what they did was all a sham. These men of worldly wisdom had to admit, in essence, that their whole profession is a sham, a charade. They said to the king, for someone to do that, they would have to have a hotline to God, it says there. Yet exactly that's exactly what they claimed to have. But when they said, hey, nobody could do that, the king commanded that they all, all these wise men should be put to death. Look at verse 13. So the decree went, decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now, the king had not yet called Daniel or his three friends to discuss the dream, yet because they were classified as wise men, they were going to be put to death just the same as the others. And so Arioch, the king's guard, comes to kill Daniel and his three friends and they're about to die for something they had no involvement in. Now, think about the choice that Daniel had at this point, depending on what kind of uh, a man Daniel was. He could have said, man, you're not going to take me. I had nothing to do with this. And he could have tried to defend himself. He might have complained and protested and said, this is unfair, this is wrong. You know, he might have even cried for mercy. But he doesn't do any of those things. We read that he simply responded in verse 14 with counsel and wisdom. Or discretion and discernment. Or wisdom and tact as the NIV puts it. Proverbs 2.11 says, discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you. Had Daniel responded in any other way, you would not have a Daniel. Here he asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. And looking at his level head and the spiritual wisdom, it amazes me 
to remember that Daniel was only in his teens, maybe his early 20s at this point. But he understood who his God was. And this was an example of God's divine intercession giving Daniel favor in the eyes of an authority because earlier the king had not been willing to, to grant time telling the others, well, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. Nebuchadnezzar said. Oh, we're going to kill them all. But here for Daniel, he has time. Well, what does he do? Look at verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. First thing he does, man, let's get together and let's pray. We need to pray. We need to pray God's will in this whole situation. Praying the mercy of God that they might be put to death. They sought the Lord. You know, the, the Bible says in James 1, 5 through 8, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of God. And God gives to all liberally and without reports it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed from the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. David and his friends, they said, no, we're going to ask God. We're going to believe that God is going to move and work. And that's what he does. You know, long before James ever wrote those words, David understood, or Daniel understood the principle and asked God and he'll answer. In verse 19 we read, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in the night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Let me give you five quick reasons why God answered Daniel's prayer. Number one, Daniel asked. You know, the Bible says we have not because we ask not. Simply, Daniel and his buddies, they asked God. Number two, Daniel was available. Daniel was willing to take a risk. You might say, what risk? He was going to be hacked to pieces and die. Listen, he still took a risk. And I believe if we want to be used by God, we need to make ourselves available. And yes, sometimes it means taking a risk. Number three, Daniel was obedient. Now, we also think that there's a direct relationship between Daniel's willingness to be obedient and, and the depth of revelation he received from God. You know, we're told that we're to, in Ephesians chapter 6, 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. There's times in our life where we, we have to take a stand. In other words, Daniel's gift came in part because of his refusal to defile himself with the idolatry of Babylon. And, and he said, no, I'm going to take a stand for the Lord. And I believe if we want to see God's blessings, we need to constantly check ourselves and check to see that we're doing all we can to stand, to live a godly life. To not let anything in our lives that come in that's going to hinder what God wants to do in our lives. We don't deserve God's blessing, but we certainly don't want to put ourselves in a position not to receive them. The number four, Daniel was humble. He was willing to have God have his way and give God all the credit. There's these three attributes I would recommend. Faithfulness, obedience, and humility. And finally, we'll see that, that Daniel's prayer was answered simply because in God's sovereignty, God chose to answer it. I mean, if God had a different plan for Daniel's life, he could have said, nope, you're going to die and it's over. I've got someone else I'm going to use. But he doesn't do that. He chose to answer that. And again, verse 19, that the secret was revealed to Daniel in the night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Always remember, bless the Lord. Thank the Lord for answered prayer. As Daniel does here. Look at verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked for you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Just, a, just this beautiful prayer of praise, recognizing that God is in control. God is sovereign. He speaks. He reveals secrets. He gives wisdom. Again, James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally to all without reproach. It will be given to him. Daniel asked God. God gave it to him. Daniel now knew that even the most powerful ruler in the world must yield to God. Nebuchadnezzar was on that throne because God allowed him to be there. And he could just just as easily remove him. He removes kings and raises up kings, we read in verse 21. See, Daniel sought the Lord. The Lord answered. And now out of Daniel's heart flow praises to God. He blesses God and thanks him for doing this. How often do we forget to thank God for answered prayer? I think of the time when Jesus was traveling towards Jerusalem and he was passing between Samaria and, and Galilee in a certain village there and ten lepers came out and, 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 and they're crying out to him, Jesus, have mercy on us. And he saw them and, and, and he told them, hey, you know, go and show the, the priest that you've got the healing and, and, and they want and, and, and they're going, they were cleansed and only one of them returned to thank Jesus, thank the Lord for healing. And the Lord says in verse 17 of chapter uh, Luke chapter 17. Were there not ten clans, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? How inconsiderate. How, how unthankful. How much <laughs> like we are they. You know? We, you know, we do the same thing. Oh, Lord, we need this and we need this. Lord, would you move? Would you work? And then it's all right. God does it. See you later, God. No, we need to remember to pray just as fervently in Thanksgiving as we do for the needs that we have. Well, Daniel's taken before the king. He makes sure he's not going to get the glory or the credit for having this interpretation. He makes sure to emphasize that it's all God. Look at verses 24 through 30. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come after, come to pass after this, and he revealed secrets and made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than any living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation of the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. See, Daniel, he's taken before the king, and he's making sure, hey, has nothing to do with me, Daniel says. This is all God. God gets all the credit. I think all too often, people that God uses oftentimes take God's credit. They'll be used by God in some situation and tell everyone, oh, look, yeah, yeah, God did this, but, but also I did this and I did this and this happened and, and, and look what I did here. And, and, and it's like, wait a minute, where is God in all this? See, although they're merely tools being used in the hand of God, they become the focus of the attention. 
I think of it this way. You may know someone that, that's really a great craftsman, someone who's, who's truly gifted, maybe working with wood, and they make you just this, this beautiful handcrafted table. They say, man, it's, it's a gift. I just want to give it to you. You're not going to say to that person, who was that checkout person at Lowe's that, that, that sold you the lumber? Man, they're, they, man, they're really cool. That's awesome. What a great job. Oh, wow. What saw did you use? I, I mean, that's an amazing saw. Man, those drill holes are perfect. Man, I, I just got to thank that drill. We're not going to do that. It's the one who handles the tool that receives the glory, not the tool. In the same way, it should be with us. We, we are just the tool in the hand of God. I think of their Numbers chapter 20. The children of Israel, they're in the wilderness and they're once again thirsty and they confront Moses about being thirsty. And so Moses goes to the Lord and, and then the Lord and God told him, hey, get your rod and get your brother Aaron and get the people together and, and in front of all the people, speak to this rock and, and water's going to come out right before their eyes. And you remember that, that Moses took the rod, gathered the people all together and it says, he says there, now listen, you rebels, shall we bring forth water from you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth. Instead of uh, speaking to the rock, Moses said, you know, he, he struck it. He says, must we bring water? And, and the Lord says to Moses and Aaron there in Numbers 20, verse 12, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land which I have given them. They couldn't enter the promise then because they misrepresented God, number one. But number two, they were taking the glory from God. God was the one doing the miracle and Moses was just the instrument of the miracle and yet Moses shouted, must we bring forth water? We weren't we, Moses. How are you bringing the water out of the rock? It was all God, yet Moses was not only taking the credit for it, he misrepresented God, misrepresented God by being angry and that really ended Moses' ministry. We must be very careful not to take credit for that which glory belongs to God. Paul said this in the 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He also said in 2 Corinthians eleven thirty, If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Or New Living Translation, If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. Oh, Lord! I just got to boast that, man, I just got a weak back. I can't walk. Oh, Lord, I'm just boasting about how weak I am. You see what he's saying there? Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So God is in the business of, of, of resisting and pushing down proud people, but God is also in the business of lifting up and honoring humble people. Because here's the deal, if you humble yourself before God and seek to bring Him glory, God is going to give you more opportunities to bring Him glory. But if you want to assume that everything you do is because of how great you think you are, then, then you're not going to be used by God at all. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, James says in 4 verse 6. So what kind of people do we want to be? Daniel could have gone either way. I mean, think about it. With the understanding of this dream here, Daniel could have, I mean, he could have done a, a number of things. He could have played some games with King Nebuchadnezzar. He could have watched up the king and said, hey, hey, kingship, how's it going? Here you had a dream, kind of, kind of troubling you. Yeah, that's right. Well, let me tell you about your dream, kingy. Do you saw hey, like a, like a, like a huge statue? I did, I did, I did. Okay, you want a little more? Yeah, yeah, of course they do. Tell me more. Was there some gold in your dream? Yeah, there was some gold. Tell me more. Listen, king, have I got a deal for you? I'm sure you want to know more, and I, and I know more. 
People would pay hundreds of dollars for, to get this information that I have, but for five monthly payments of twenty nine ninety five, I'll give you two more minutes of the interpretation of this dream. And if you act now, I'll throw in an additional minute on top of that. Or like they have today. If you sign up for $15 a month, it'll automatically come out of your checking account. I'll interpret all your dreams for you. Just, you know, just sign up for the app. I mean, Daniel could have done that, been financially set for life. But then it would have all been back on Daniel. How can I make money? How can I profit for this? How can I do this? Or Daniel could have gone the other way. He could have acted very, very spiritual. Have you seen people like that? You know, kind of uh, the spiritual arrogance. Maybe on TV you've seen them. These so-called televangelists. And they're talking. They're walking around. They're talking. And all of a sudden they go, Oh, oh Lord. Oh, you want me to say something? Oh, yes. Oh, God. God just spoke to me. And he wants me to say, Wait a minute. What are you doing? God just spoke to you. So what they're doing is they're putting themselves way above you. It's like, it's like they're saying, well, while I'm speaking, God is going to suddenly speak to me in a way that you can't hear and you all can't, can't understand, but, but, but I wish you were me. You see, Daniel here is standing before Nebuchadnezzar and the king says, so you've got the interpretation of my dream. Daniel could have done any number of things at that point, but he doesn't. Daniel says, stop right there, king, verse 28. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He says, number one, it's not me, it's God. You need to know that right off the bat. Then he says, number two, look at verse 30. The secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who made known the interpretation to the king that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Not because I'm smarter than the rest of these guys. It's only because God really wants to answer your prayer, Nebuchadnezzar. God wants to give you the information that you're seeking. See, my point here is that that, uh, Daniel's humility becomes his strength. Think about this. God wants the glory and God doesn't like to use people who will steal it. Over the years, I've seen men that God has used mightily slip into obscurity all because they sought glory for themselves. Now, now it seems sometimes they, they start to look at their own mind and they, they get, you know, they just get a little weird. You know, that weirdness is almost as if you can put a timer on it. When you start hearing things like, well, you know, I'm doing this in my ministry and in my church and, and in my business and the focus on me, myself and I, and it's not God, then God at some point will say, fine. If you don't want me to be part of what you're doing, let's see how you do on your own. Listen, I think if you're in a business and God's really blessed you in business, that at some point in time He's going to ask of you to prove that your business is really His. Might be through a decision you need to make or, 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 or an attitude, but at some point in time He's going to reconcile with, with who belongs to what. See, we don't want to be proud in our own spirit. I don't want to think that any wisdom of God comes from my own ingenuity or brains, but it is totally a gift from God so that God gets the glory. I don't want to have a haughty heart. I know that it's a, uh, because I know that that's a perfect place to experience the resistance of God. And I don't want to face the resistance of God. I, I want a God who's always for me. And the best way to do this, is, the Bible teaches, is that you continue to get out of the way. And when someone seeks to give you glory for something that is completely of the Lord, get out of the way. Give the glory to the Lord. Lord, it's not me. It's Jesus. God will keep using you mightily. But the moment you start to take the glory from the Lord, that's it. Isaiah 42.8 says, The Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Remember King Herod over in the book of Acts chapter 12? It's actually a pretty scary story. 
when the, the people were speak, speaking out, they, they thought he was a god. In fact, they said it's, it's the voice of a god and not of a man. And the Bible says that he refused to give the glory to the Lord. His body fell on the ground and the worms began to eat him up big time. Worms crawled in, the worms crawled out, the worms crawled in. Why? Because he didn't give glory to God. Here, Daniel again gave all the glory to God. He took none for himself. There's no limit to what God would do for the believer who gives God all the glory. Now, Daniel begins to reveal the dream. Look at verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from, un- from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. It's a dream of a statue made of several different materials. Then a stone strikes his statue's feet, crushes the entire image, and then blew away to nothing. But the stone, on the other hand, turns into this huge mountain. A bizarre dream to say the least. Then Daniel says in verse 36, This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Now, again, once Nebuchadnezzar heard the dream, I'm sure he's going, that's exactly what it is. So he knew that Daniel would have the interpretation. Verse 37, he says, the interpretation, You, O king, are the king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. I get pictured, Nebuchadnezzar's going, that's right, I'm the head of gold, you know. And, and, and really, that's the first part of the image. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is calling him, it says there, the king of kings. That kind of, it's a little bit disturbing for us, especially because, as, as you know, we read the New, the New Testament, Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. But we need to remember, while this phrase is a New Testament title of Jesus, it's used in the Old Testament Description And truly, Nebuchadnezzar was a king of kings. His rule and reign has conquered many nations. And the men who sat on the thrones of those nations all served him. And then, uh, again, a description of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, was later called the king of kings for the same reason. But here we see the head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon. And just as the king uh, personified the kingdom, so too its capital, capital city was also. In fact, Isaiah referred to Babylon as a golden city in Isaiah 14.4. Now, historically, uh, Herodotus, the, the ancient historian, noted his amazement at the sheer quantity of gold in Babylon. It seemed to cover everything. Even the walls around the city, remembered, remembered from such size and width that two chairs could race down them, uh, were plated with gold. So it all has this picture of gold. Then he says in verse 37, For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. Again, pointing to the fact of the sovereignty of God. I like, again, remember in our minds, Daniel's a young teenager, maybe early 20s, or old teenager, maybe young 20s, you know, and and, uh, uh, he's respectfully saying, hey, everything you have, Nebuchadnezzar, is because God has given it to you. The kingdom of Babylon had been established by God for God's own purposes. As Daniel said earlier in verse 21, he removes kings and establishes kings. See, Babylon had, a, had conquered the Assyrian Empire and gained authority over many nations. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom stretched south of Jerusalem and east, north, 
and east and north to surround the entire territory covered by the Tigris and Euphrates River. And Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, all your power, all your achievements, they all come from God. In fact, uh, the Lord has spoken this in Ezekiel 30, verse 25 of Babylon. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh will fall. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. Obviously, the Babylonians were not righteous. So then how could this power come from God again? It was for God's own purpose. Remember Paul said in, in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. It's God who raises up kings, God who, who removes kings. Next we come to the chest and arms of silver and then the belly and thighs of bronze. Verse 39, but after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. So Daniel prophesies after the fall of Babylon, another kingdom is going to come up that would arise. And this was represented by the image of the breast and the arms made of silver. This prophecy was fulfilled 539 B.C. when Cyrus, the king of Persia, and Darius, the king of Media, uh, Medes, captured Babylon. Now we're going to see this take place at the end of, of chapter 5. But at this point, the world power became the Medo-Persian Empire. But notice that Daniel calls it an inferior kingdom. He's not speaking of strength or size. Certainly the Medo-Persian Empire was stronger or larger than, the, and larger than the Babylonian Empire, but it lacked the unity and structure of government that Babylon had. And these, these truths are evident even in the image. Traveling down from head to toe as the metals decrease, decrease in value, they increase in strength. But the structure of the government keeps getting weaker and weaker. Next, Daniel describes the third kingdom of bronze or brass. In verse 32, he says it's belly and thighs of bronze. Now this would be the Greek Empire. See, we're just following time here under Alexander the Great. Notice that Daniel prophesied that this third kingdom would rule over all the earth. So not only did, did Alexander defeat Darius, the Medes army, but he soon had defeated everyone else as well. Now you may have remembered this, you know, from high school history class. I said you may remember. I don't remember much from my high school history class, but, but you may remember at the age of 33, Alexander sat down and wept because there was no one left to conquer. This was the Greek Empire, which lasted from 330 B.C. to 63 B.C. Now look at verse 40. We see the fourth kingdom. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Now Daniel here describes his fourth kingdom as one of iron. The kingdom would crush everything. We know that kingdom as that of Rome. Now, in the vision of the statue, this is represented by two legs. Why two legs? Well, because the Roman Empire split in two. If, if you remember, the east and the west, Roman had Constantinople and, and the Byzantine Empire. It was the Iron Empire. Man, they crushed everybody. It was a beautiful, powerful uh, regime, empire. It was, it, 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 that is what overcame the Grecian Empire, the two legs of iron. They had a limited democracy, which was less powerful than the preceding empires. Again, the, the metals are, are diminishing in power because the rulers are diminishing in power, not the kingdoms themselves. But what is interesting is that we come to the two legs of iron and then suddenly we stop. So you've got to picture in your mind what we have. We have the head of gold, the Babylonians. We have the arms of silver, the Medo-Persians. We have the, the, the Greek, the brass belly, the Grecians, and then the iron legs, the Romans. But then it stops. 
Why does it stop right there? Well, because the Romans did something to stop it. Now again, this is God's timetable and God allowed it. He allowed the Romans in 70 AD to do this terrible thing to the nation of Israel, which then stopped the clock. Israel, that, that little country in the center of the world geographically is God's timepiece and it's really our key to understanding the rest of the book of Daniel and prophecy. Always in the Bible you watch Israel to understand what's happening prophetically. But here in Daniel's prophecy it stops and that is because in AD 70 the Romans came down to Israel and annihilated the nation. They burned the temple, they slaughtered the people, many uh, women were raped. A horrible time under the Titus Roman general and the Jews scattered. The Roman Empire crushed and destroyed everything in its path. David Hawkins writes this, There is no empire in the world history that so crushed all of its enemies as Rome did. They were not satisfied just to take over a country and make them pay taxes. They slaughtered them. Rome crushed the people so that they would never even consider rebelling. From that time on, Israel had, 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 was, was never a sovereign nation. It was always held you know, by other powers, but it was never a sovereign nation. Therefore, you know, when you look at what's currently going on in the news and, and in Israel and the Palestinians, they have no right to say, this is our homeland. They want their land back. It was never their land to begin with. Last people to occupy that region of the world independently were the Jews in AD 70. So when you hear all this propaganda, the Palestinians wanting their land, their land, not so. The last sovereign nation there were the Jews and after 8070, when they were wiped out, it became a, no, a sense of no man's land. Until 1948. I mean, everything, you can go back to 1948, suddenly miracles of miracles, the clock starts again because Israel re-emerges as an independent nation, May 14th, 1948. Now think about this, it's really amazing. Daniel is speaking about this with such amazing accuracy. He lists the four empires and then he stops. He doesn't mention any of the others that have come on the scene that have tried to conquer the world. Doesn't mention Charlemagne, doesn't mention Mussolini, doesn't even mention Hitler. Why is that? Well, because none of them were able to con consolidate their empire to make it happen as it relates to Israel, because Israel was not yet a nation. The time clock stopped until 1948. Israel suddenly reemerged as a nation. It's a miracle. It, it confounds the world. Nothing like that has ever happened in history. Never before has been a people scattered all over the world to come back together as a people. Well, this now brings us to this one last element of the statue that comes into play and, and we're seeing it happen right now before our eyes. Look again at verse 40. This is the fourth kingdom. It's as strong as iron, it says. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything and like the iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will be mingled with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So as you go from the legs to the feet, suddenly it changes composition a bit. These ten toes, part of iron and part of clay, which is fragile or brittle. In other words, it doesn't hold together very well. It seems to, to break apart. Now, many of us already knew that May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation. But what also is interesting, that on May 9, 1950, two years later, six nations came together in the city of Rome. 
and started to form what's called the Treaty of Rome. They started a new resurrected Roman Empire and extension of the legs, and, and they originally called it the European Common Market, six nations. Now catch this, according to one source, when you read those treaties that were signed at that time in 1950, they called themselves the Big Ten. The goal was to have ten nations. Now we know that there's a lot more nations now involved in that, and we're going to look at that in the future. And I really want to say that for chapter 7 of Daniel when we get there. But for now, it's kind of just a sneak preview of coming attractions. I don't want to give too much away on that. But it's an extension of the Roman government. And even so, we read here that they're not really going to be held together too well. A, a lot of problems. And if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of problems in the EU today. You know, people exiting and, and, and wanting, and it's just not holding together that well. But Daniel says there's going to be a group of, of ten from the revival of the old European empire. Again, very interesting that the Lord at the same time allowed Israel to be reborn and then two years later, suddenly the beginning of the Big Ten within two years. Not something coincidental. Something that's happening. It's God's timetable. Let's look at now verse, verse 44. It says, And in the days of these kings, these ten nations, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not left, be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Uh, don't you love Daniel? He doesn't say, was I right? Did I get all the, all the events right? Did, did, did I describe the statue just right? Can I live? No, he says, the dream is certain, and you, and, you, and you know, King, that's exactly as I said, and the interpretation is exactly equally certain. Again, wouldn't you love to have seen Nebuchadnezzar's face? I'm sure his mouth was just hanging open. Here's what's really exciting for us as we get ready to close. The coming of the Lord is imminent. In the time of the ten nations, we see a stone not cut with hands, and verse 45 comes down, strikes the feet, the ten toes that are not like the old empire. It's not strong iron. It's got iron and clay mixed together, so it really doesn't compare to the old empire, but it's linked to it. But man, all of it's just boom. It, it's pulverized. It, it's, it's crushed. That stone, cut without hands, is none other than the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty three said that the Jews, to the Jews, he's a stone of stumbling. And even to this day, the Jewish people, for the most part, still stumble over Jesus Christ being the rock. He's a stone of stumbling. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 1 and tells us to the Gentiles, he's a stone of crushing. I mean, Jesus comes, and in the image for the Gentiles, with all their pride and power and empire buildings and kingdoms, boom, it just destroys them all, crushes them. It's a stone cut without hands. It's Jesus coming himself. See, I cannot read the second chapter of Daniel and look at what's happening in our world today without getting excited. That Jesus is coming very, very soon. We're getting very close. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is blown away by all this. I mean, wouldn't you be? So, so what does he say? Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burnt sweet incense before him. No, Nebi, you got it all wrong here, buddy. He's going to learn that. Verse 47. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal the secret. Here's the sad part at this point. Notice Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say, now your God is my God. 
He just says, man, your God is really impressive. I mean, true, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say your God is my God, but this is the beginning. God is, is beginning to knock on Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And, and eventually will lead him into the kingdom of God, but not yet. You can go home and read ahead to see what then comes. But at this point, it just says, your God is a God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets. Then in verse 48, then the king promoted Daniel and gave him great many gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Not bad for a young Jewish boy. Verse 49. Also Daniel petitioned the king and he sat Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So the prophecies in which all prophecy is built, we just see right here that, I mean, we're just, just living in the last days. We see a revival of the Roman Empire. It's fragile. They fight among each other. It's powerful like the original Roman Empire was, but it's different. As I said already, I think that the stone is coming. Human history is getting ready to close and we're living in the last days. There's no doubt about it. Now as you read on in Daniel, you'll read this vision repeated, though it's not from the perspective of a great image of a man. But we're going to see in a few weeks that the same story is repeated from God's perspective and it's going to be four beasts with bloody mouths and horrible features. Because man looks, you know, at, at his kingdom and says, boy, aren't we something? Aren't we together? Look at this great image, gold and brass and iron. But that's man's perspective of government and empires. But from God's perspective, man, it's four bloody beasts which need to be dealt with very severely. But praise God, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, as you read chapter 3 next week, see if you can answer this. Why did Nebuchadnezzar, in light of this vision, 17 years later, build an image like the one he saw in his dream, only not just the head of the gold, but the whole thing is made out of gold? Could it be that he was trying to make a statement, saying, nobody's going to take my kingdom over? Okay, I gave you the answer, but go ahead and read it anyway. And, and, uh, and you'll see these three young men standing up for the Lord. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Next week it's going to be great. Let's pray.